Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, Really happy to be back for another week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, um, once again, something to look forward to amidst um, a lot going on in the world. Um, So yeah, I've been looking forward to checking in. (laughs) Yeah. How are you doing, Lindsay? Uh, it's hard. It's a hard time. I mean, we've talked about this sometimes uh, in maybe more uh, general terms, but I live pretty much in downtown Oakland. Um, and mm-hmm. what that means, which I think is sort of good and bad, is that I'm very much in the middle. We, we like hear helicopters every day. Mm-hmm hear all of the variety of different weapons that are being used um, in the streets of Oakland. And, um, and, and I am someone that spends a lot of my time, at least I have in the past few years, uh, working on allyship and trying to mm-hmm. be uh, more mindful and just generally listening to and aware and working on issues of racism. And, and so like, it's just been a lot um, this week in every way. I'm pretty emotionally exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but um, th- this is the kind of thing that sort of has to happen, I guess, in, in, uh, in making progress. So uh, trying yeah, to nothing yeah. comfortable about progress really <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um so yeah it's it's a it's a difficult time but it, i mean i'm <laughs> between twitter and and instagram and linkedin i feel like i uh there's just no shortage of like people talking about things that i think are pretty interesting interesting just to see people talking frankly uh, sure yeah how are you Good, good. I've been really interested to see how, you know, it's, this topic is sort of handled in the both professional associations, but also firms, architecture firms and others, um, just trying to process it and figure out how to talk about it in a way that is respectful and meaningful, um, but also very listening and learning, you know, and trying to do all those things at once. it's very interesting to see. I mean, I think a lot of people have been trying to bring equity issues into their practices and into these, into the you know associations like the American Institute of Architects in a number of ways in recent years, but a lot of that is new and maybe, and not as tangible as people wish it were. Yeah. Um, so there's that, there's a lot of processing happening um, and also trying to be respectful and amplify voices rather than maybe do a lot of your own talking. So there's yeah. a that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been generally generally impressed by the degree to which people are getting that message about amplifying mm-hmm. agreed uh, other non-white voices. Uh that's been pretty great. I Yeah, but I also super fascinated. I I've just I've been fascinated by this idea, this question of what what politics we bring to work uh, mm-hmm. throughout the the past couple of years being at WeWork because it was partially my job to bring politics to work and to figure out how that what when that was appropriate and when it, it was a you know bad idea in whatever way and we had some pretty deep and interesting conversations about that stuff when I was there um, you know about for example like can we regulate who, which clients we agree to do business with and what would that right. look like and how legal is that and these kinds of things you right. know across the spectrum but it, it's um in particular i think um really heartening for me to see the number of people posting about race on linkedin which i think has previously been yep um perceived as sort of unprofessional i was talking to a friend just yesterday who was saying he he has like a lot of people on linkedin posting on sort of very different perspectives on uh on this issue and it's very uncomfortable for him to realize that people that he works with maybe don't 
share his political um, beliefs, and that's obviously really hard. Um, and, and it kind of makes you wonder, like, what exactly, what should I do about that? Um, sure. I just kind of think that's great. Uh, it is. That is progress in and of itself, right? Yeah. Understanding yeah. those, hearing those and knowing, learning about those other perspectives and being able, and, you know, that brings up those questions about how we're bringing values to work, to your point about, you know, what you were just talking about, choosing clients and such things. I mean, that's, that's huge. And, and working through that, what that means in any type of business is a really yeah. big deal. Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me of something we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast about rules that other people have established for us about how we behave in, in the business world. You know, uh -huh. like conversation we had with, with Sarah Golden about language and yes. youth and things. And I was, I, I posted a piece on LinkedIn that I read from a black woman who was going back to work after this just heart-wrenching, difficult weekend. And one of the things she says is sort of whoever made that rule that I'm not allowed to sort of, you know, be an individual and have opinions and have politics when I'm at work mm -hmm. really did a disservice to society by doing so. And I thought it was a good way of just sort of highlighting I'm not quoting her directly. I, um, apologies for that, but just like yep. I, it was a, it was more eloquent even than what I sure. now. Well, no, that's it's inherently dehumanizing, right? If you have to take that out, I mean, what do you what are you coming to work as? Yeah, <laughs> if, if you don't yeah. have that with you. Yeah, and I do think that's one of the reasons that we um, think it's important to celebrate feminine leadership because I think in a lot of ways, feminine leadership has a has more has a enhanced emphasis on the importance of bringing your full self to work and that being okay absolutely um, you know um and and so i i i hope that uh and i mean you know honestly i've been inspired by some of the women leaders in the world this week and the way that they're handling talking about these issues in their communities without yes. sort of you know unnecessarily uh calling things out that you know whatever it's yeah a, yeah good work being done there by absolutely mayor of atlanta in particular i think yeah is a great yeah. job yeah really great to see her step forward yeah so you know here's to more women leaders uh and uh leaders of color and the importance of their voices and their presence in these times uh well uh, it's a, it's a hard time to even transition into like, you know, not talking about just the events of the day. Yeah. Um, but I am excited for our guest because I know that she is going to also want to talk about the events of the day. So let's get started. Um, Great. We, this week we have Elaine Shea with us. Um, and hi, Elaine. Hey, everyone. <laughs> kind of depressing, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hi, I'm glad uh, to be guest on the show. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We're super happy to have you. Uh, Elaine is a co-founder and head of corporate partnerships and marketing for the Third Derivative, which is a very new organization that she's going to tell us about. Um, but before this, Elaine has worn many hats, um, including working at GreenBiz. And before that, she was more involved specifically in the building industry. Um, so yeah, she, I, I actually asked Elaine to join the podcast before we knew about this new role. And so she mm -hmm. has, there's lots of stories to tell, uh, before, you know, on top of what you're doing now, Elaine, but, um, maybe if you just want to get started telling us a little bit about, about your path, about how you got involved in sustainability work, buildings, all that. Yeah. I'm happy to do that. So, I had a long and windy path to sustainability. So basically the high level <laughs> is that I grew up as an only child is in a Chinese immigrant family in an oil town in Oklahoma, um, the middle of rural Oklahoma, uh, which there weren't many immigrants and there definitely weren't very many people um, of Asian descent. Um, there were some black people and talking about what's going on right now in terms of um, racial injustice. Um, while while my family suffered some of it, absolutely not the same level of systemic injustice that was um, has been kind of permanent within um, even Oklahoma's community, specifically um, in the Black American community. So 
Um, I have a lot of empathy with what is happening right now, but I think I spent a lot of my childhood trying to get people to see um, a, a better way, <laughs> to get them to empathize, to get them to understand that minorities weren't just a, a thing that was to be feared. Um, and so anyway, that that's all to say that that actually kind of helped shape how I communicate and also what I sought to do. Um, but going, growing up in an oil town, I thought I would be a chemical engineer because everybody else was like a petroleum engineer, or chemical engineer. Um, but I ended up going to Duke University um, as an undergrad and in graduate school. And I thought, uh, you know, of course, I go into engineering, but there was no chemi as an option. They don't have chemical engineering as a, a degree there. So I got into biomedical engineering, just thinking, oh, well, that seems kind of similar. Um, but I, it got me into kind of thinking about how technology could truly help people because biomedical engineering is um, an area where you're taking a lot of really interesting aspects of material science engineering, electrical engineering, and mechanical engineering, and you're um, kind of overlaying that across health. Um, and so you're basically everything that you're doing from an engineering standpoint is um, about making people healthier. Um, and a lot of it is around innovation. Um, so just the things that I was working on were really fascinating. And I just really got into the idea of how can I help people through technology? Um, so after that, I went to graduate school at Duke also and, and graduated in something called engineering management. I got my master's in that, which exposed me to a theory of how business worked. Um, because clearly I hadn't had a lot of industry experience yet. So it was really more kind of like a mini MBA, but really more with an engineering slant because I knew that I wanted to build a business or I wanted to be part of the business world. And so from there, it was the late nineties and I got into um, internet consulting because <laughs> that's what everybody else did. And I also wow. wanted to change the world <laughs> as, as we all did in the dot-com boom um, for those of us who are of a certain ilk. <clears throat> and we, came out to San Francisco um, and got into project management, internet consulting, um, rode the dot-com boom and the dot-com bust, and then eventually landed in um, education <laughs> of all places. I ran Kaplan test centers of all random things. Um, there were a number of circumstances which led me out of that. Um, and I got into back into kind of engineering, but I got into acoustical engineering, which is what led me to the buildings world. Um, where I was doing noise and vibration consulting for a lot of different kinds of building projects. Everything from the Disney Concert Hall and Pixar Mixing Studios to, um, you know, multifamily housing, hospitals, uh, commercial offices, etc. And that was my foray into learning about green buildings and understanding that, first of all, like, Sound and noise and problems like that were definitely uh, uh, kind of the center center for the built environment at Lawrence Berkeley Labs had um, done a post-occupancy study, as you know, Lindsay, you're very intimately involved mm -hmm. with that, um, understanding that one of the main causes of sick building syndrome and a lot of complaints and kind of employee retention issues had to do with noise. And so my acoustics background kind of led me into the U.S. Green Building Council to talk about how to mitigate noise and how to make the indoor environment a little bit more healthy in that way. Um, and so that was kind of my introduction into green building. And I was working on projects that were not that sustainable and I did not feel good about them. So I decided to volunteer at the U.S. Green Building Council Northern California chapter. And that's how I ended up in leadership there, as well as, you know, kind of going through a lot of the USGBC volunteer leadership groups. Um, which eventually led me into, you know, being part of the lead steering committee and really getting heavily involved. But during that time, I was doing all these acoustic stuff, and I started cutting my teeth in the building and construction industry, which I had no background in. But because of my involvement volunteering with the U.S. Green Building Council, I ended up um, being on the board with someone who was really influential to me, Andrea Traber, who is now at Integral Group. Um, and she hired me at Kima, which is now DNVGL, um, to be a green building consultant full time. So I did that for a while um, and was basically sustainability manager for a lot of green building projects, did lead green building consulting for a long time early on. And this was the early 2000s. So this is fairly early in. Um, and so it became very influential in terms of green building policy shaping, as well as standard shaping and all that stuff, um, which eventually led me into looking at hardcore 
um, kind of clean energy solutions as well as distributed solutions in global utilities. And I became a global business strategist within DNV Kima, then DNV GL. Um, and I did that uh, for a while. And then that eventually led me into getting a job at GreenBiz, which is a, um, I think you had Sarah Golden on as a guest. She works at GreenBiz. It's a, a global media company that, uh, you know, mostly has an audience of corporate sustainability professionals, but they had a kind of nascent uh, event platform called Verge um, back then. And um, I joined them in 2013 to sort of help lead the programming for Verge to take it to the next level in terms of expanding the audience for not just corporate greening, but specifically um, engaging those who are in involved with innovation and operations and finance and those who are decision makers in terms of um, how technology could accelerate more sustainable solutions across a number of different industries that I happen to have experienced. So energy, buildings, transportation, food, ag, et cetera. <clears throat> and so that was kind of how I got into that. And eventually I kind of got a huge Rolodex of people that I knew that were really credible across a lot of different industries. And that's kind of what spanned me to where I am today. That's so much there. I first of all I want to make sure we give a shout out because um, Andrea Traber was just on the podcast last week, and so it's it's not out yet uh, uh, as we speak now. But by the time um, your podcast is posted, Andrea's <laughs> will have been the week before. So this cool. week, right? It will be like a great. Um, was it the week before, or maybe two weeks? In any case, there you, the our listeners can sort of trace. Uh, whatever influences might exist there, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I want to ask you, because of all of these different types of roles that you've played um, throughout your career, can you talk about how you find new roles? Like, what are you looking for when you, when you're looking for a new organization or when, when some, you know, someone approaches you, how do you, what do you, how do you assess a good fit? Which, you know, it's just, you've done so many different things. I think that's a pretty, specifically relevant question for someone like you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, my life and career paths have been pretty windy because of several factors. So one, I didn't know what I wanted to do, <laughs> but I knew I wanted to make a difference. I think that's a lot of people, um, especially when you're young. Um, and then another thing is that I like to learn new things and I'm not afraid of tackling things that seem challenging. So even though I didn't know anything about the building and construction world, um, I knew that I had the chops to be able to do some of the engineering and other things like that to go into acoustics and I would learn the rest and I had the consulting ability and there were so many things that I sort of knew what I could do and I was willing to be uncomfortable um, to try to tackle something that I thought could be a growth opportunity. Um, and then another thing is that if I experience something really valuable and or aligned with my personal values, I want to get more involved. Um, so, you know, green building, that was like hitting that sweet spot for me. It was like, yeah, why shouldn't more people be doing that? I don't think a lot of people knew about that at the time. And they just needed kind of to get more educated and to be able to be exposed to more things like that. And once you kind of open your eyes to something like that's better, then you don't really want to go back. Right. So I just wanted to get more involved. And then after like 20 plus years of having jobs across at least seven different industries, <laughs> um, <laughs> I've cultivated a good sense of what I'm good at, what I'm really not good at, and the type of culture I thrive in and, and want to help shape to help others thrive in just in order to do more good in the world. So to answer your question about like, how do you look for new roles and new organizations? Basically, first I look for mission alignment and culture fit. Do I believe in what they're doing? Does the company seem authentic? What type of vibe do I get from the people? Does the leadership team seem like a group I'd like to emulate? And then on the role side, I sort of ask, you know, does the job tap into my strengths? Will I be able to grow? Will the job challenge me in a good way? Um, I think that when you start feeling too comfortable, you stop growing. That's my personal feeling. And I always have a level of discomfort in everything that I'm doing because <laughs> I actually like that edgy, that edge. Um, I, I think that if I, it gets a little bit too easy, it's a dangerous place for me. Um, I, I generally feel like change is good and I'm a, a very strange animal in that, um, you know, not many people like change and it's easy and it's great to, to feel comfortable, 
But I think that if you want to actually make progress and you want to accelerate positive change, you have to always be a little bit on that edge. That's great, Elaine. That's so interesting. Um, and really, I'm, I don't know, empowering kind of the way you look at that. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about about third derivative and sort of why it is needed. What, what gap is it filling versus other accelerator programs, for example? Yeah, so I am currently at third derivative. Um, we just launched uh, our soft launch as a social campaign. We're not gonna have a bigger launch until later, but <clears throat> what third derivative is just before I get into why it's needed is it's a unique global accelerator program for startups, early stage energy tech and climate tech startups that I'm helping to build right now. Um, it's founded by Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, which is a, for those who don't know, it's a world renowned clean energy think and do tank founded by Emory Levins. <clears throat> it's really kind of uh, globally recognized. Um, and New Energy Nexus, which is a global entrepreneur support organization um, right now helm helmed by Danny Kennedy. Um, who's also pretty well known in the entrepreneurial and clean energy world. Um, Third Derivative was built to accelerate the rate of climate innovation through this integrative model that specifically addresses barriers that typically impede promising climate tech solutions to help them scale at the rate that we need them. So for context, let's first talk about why we need more climate innovation. So, you know, in the a lot of people, I think, in the green building world are like, you know, we should really accelerate energy efficiency. We have everything we need. That is definitely the line of Amory Levins. Um, and sort of, I completely agree with that. But here's the context. Even with COVID-19 shutting down global economies, plus the turmoil in the oil sector, all the things that probably would work to the advantage of lowering emissions, there was only an 8% decline in emissions this year, according to the IEA, the International Energy Association. And the world has to achieve an 8% emissions decline every year for the next decade. And even shutting down the economy didn't do that. So if your goal is decarbonization, fuel use, and where the fuel comes from, and the carbon intensity of it is going to be a continuing issue, even in the current economic turmoil we're seeing right now. So that's a super daunting challenge to think about solving climate change or bending the curve sufficiently to avoid the catastrophic effects of it. And generally right now, like we're, we're basically seeing, you know, a lot of that dirty energy supply being replaced with lower carbon energy supply because of, you know, it's in the power sector. Basically, you're seeing this mostly because of wind and solar, and that transition is underway. It's unequivocal. It's unabated because the economics are driving it. But when you start thinking about thermal processes like cement production or aluminum or steel, or you think about the building sector and the need that, to heat buildings, which you, we usually use natural gas primarily for, you start seeing how daunting the problem is given the time scale that folks like the UN and others tell us we need to act against. So basically we have, very, we have really tough energy problems that we gotta solve for in very little time. So that's why we need to rapidly commercialize and scale the most promising climate tech innovations now. So sort of that's mm -hmm. the impetus behind why, right? But to your question about what gap is their derivative filling? So there are other tech startups out there, or sorry, startup accelerator programs out there, um, but there are gaps in those particular kinds of models. And so uh, let's just talk about basically what, what the situation is if you're a climate or an energy startup entrepreneur. So typically those kinds of startups have more significant capital needs and longer paths to market than a software startup that's generally favored by investors, VCs, et cetera, right? And they also rely on large, slow moving, moving risk averse corporations as critical customers, deployment partners and acquirers. And then they got to navigate a really complex market, regulatory policy landscapes, all that stuff is actually kind of complicated for an entrepreneur and they generally favor incumbents and challenge disruptors, right? So by creating a network with, you've got committed investors, global corporates, and they're all seamlessly integrated from the start. And then you had on RMI's like really world renowned unparalleled market regulatory and energy policy insights then that's what third derivative was built for, right? So we are hoping to accelerate the rate of change, which is what third derivative's name is. It's like a mm -hmm. mathy wonky way of talking <laughs> about accelerating the rate of change um, by basically solving for the world's toughest energy challenges by using an integrative approach. 
it's it's a vertically integrated engine basically right we get all the people in the ecosystem together early on to give these entrepreneurs in climate and energy tech a fighting chance mm -hmm. right so we're basically seeking to overcome the market validation value of death you know where you go from uh development to deployment a lot of startups die on the vine right right there so so many promising startups fail to cross that valley of death there are multiple valleys of death and that's sort of like the third one so we're helping them get the help they need early on to become market ready so instead of vcs and energy startups and corporate innovation teams struggling to work in isolation we're bringing them all together with energy market experts to speed the deployment of solutions that are needed and then obviously help the ecosystem thrive um, right. also we're looking for our first cohort of global startups so check out thirdderivative.org <laughs> so that you can check out if you are a startup that's interested in being part of this program we're definitely currently actively seeking them that's great um can you talk a little bit about what specific startup technology realms you're personally excited about and where you think the most exciting new work is happening yeah totally um so you know it's interesting because there are things that will really make an impact so like i said you know there are a lot of different sources of greenhouse gas emissions and the power sector, the electricity sector in particular is making the most progress because it's the most economically viable right now. But there are a lot of other sources of greenhouse gas emissions that are harder to tackle. That's what I'm excited about, right? So in terms of impact, the things we need to work on are one, allowing greater renewables penetration. So storage, demand side management, greater transmission, all that stuff. And then also long haul transport. So thin fuels or synthetic fuels um, that are like non-petroleum products are enabled, you know, they can be enabled by carbon capture, hydrogen generation and carbon utilization. That's, there are some, so many interesting things in that area. Um, and then also carbon capture. There's the whole CCUS space, which is carbon capture utilization and sequestration. Um, we need more thermodynamically efficient ways of capturing um, such as electrochemistry, or there are also like really interesting things where you can basically take carbon and turn it into a lot of different kinds of things like alcohol or chemicals or diamonds or nanotubes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And also there's like building material decarbonization, right? Steel and cement and uh, alternatives. There's just like a lot of cool things that are happening right now in the innovation space from just a building material standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of investability, there's also stuff like efficient motors or super insulation or power electronics, like stuff that's a little less sexy, but that's just on the precipice and they just need a little bit of a push in terms of understanding how to be market ready. And then we got that now. So instead of waiting 20 years to scale these innovations, we're trying to basically get these things over the line and then moving a lot faster in less than half the time. Um, there's also a lot of other stuff that I could go into, like water and waste processing and lots of kinds of batteries and prefab passive house and like there's a lot of cool stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but those are kind of the big ones that I just listed. That's great. Yeah, so much there. I know there's a lot there. It's also sort of daunting, um, <laughs> I think, to like think about all of the different uh, technologies that one has to be comfortable with. I, I can I can say as a former entrepreneur that like one of the things that I always found fascinating was how uh, venture capitalists, but also sort of accelerator people uh, like yourself uh, managed to kind of get their heads around all these different things. But Danny Kennedy is, is one of those people where I'm like, how do you know about all this stuff? <laughs> uh, so it's really cool to hear you talk about those different realms of um of the world of clean energy innovation that we don't always think about but i think it's kind of cool to hear frankly how unsexy some of them are uh, <laughs> I, I think that's one of the things you know i always notice when we're talking about this stuff um with people who really know uh, what needs to get done is that you know like it, let's say you're an entrepreneur but you've never really worked on clean energy stuff before the idea that you have is probably going to be pretty far off from what um really you know needs to get scaled right now because it's all this kind of in the guts type of stuff a lot of it is 
um, or it relates to like complicated supply chains and things. Um, so thank you. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, the circular economy stuff is super cool to me in that you're really reinventing the way that the system works. Mm -hmm. um, just from, you know, resourcing all the way to, um, you know, disposal, which hopefully there is none, right? So that, that process right there is pretty complex and you have to really be embedded in understanding how supply chains work and how capitalism works and how, you know, there's a lot that's in there that, that definitely can be innovated. And right now, I think the circular economy as a term is energizing people to sort of think about reinventing the way that they even design things. Um, from the start, right, to sort of think, consider the life or the continuous life of something. I think there are other things too, like the unsexy things that I talked about that are still innovative, which are around business models or even finance, right? So those things are more difficult to understand if you don't understand what the pre-existing models look like. Mm -hmm. But when you dig into it and you get exposed to a lot of different kinds of industries and you start to talk to entrepreneurs um, and you start to talk to people who represent the institutional like the status quo and you realize a lot of stuff is broken and you realize also that the entrepreneurs don't fully understand how industry works and so when you can kind of combine and get them to talk to each other then they realize there's a better way so even like energy efficiency technologies or you know things that or you know, stuff that is technology that's existed for a very, very long time, you can innovate the model by which that is actually operating so that you can scale these things faster by combining like something as a service or, you know, some kind of interesting project finance model that's much more aligned where everyone profits instead of winner takes all. There's so many ways of thinking about things from a systemic standpoint with a first principles approach that shift the paradigm for something that seems super unsexy. That is really cool to me. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, okay, so then speaking of shifting paradigms and these kinds of things, uh, we want to talk to you a little bit about what, uh, how you define being a part of a movement, and do you think of yourself as part of a movement? What is it? How? What? What do you? What line do you draw around it? Um, and and how and how do you feel like the movement is doing yeah i mean yes definitely i feel like i've been part of several movements um part of the dot-com movement in the late 90s whether that's good or bad but i definitely think we shifted some paradigms and tried to create our own sort of set of rules on how to do business um, especially online um and what models look like there um, when I was part of the green building industry in the early 2000s, um, that certainly was a heady time. Lindsay and Kira, you both know this in terms of, you know, nothing was really, I mean, it was the green building movement has been, it's older than that, but it seemed like in the early 2000s, that was when things were really shifting. And then Al Gore came out with Inconvenient Truth and that kind of just blew up the USGBC's phone system. <laughs> and then we just like became the fastest growing NGO, environmental NGO in the world. And that was really a cool time in terms of really shaping what the future of the built environment could be, at least from a new construction standpoint and how people thought about things more holistically and creating a standard for that. Um, and now part of sort of the climate tech movement, if that is one, <laughs> um, but pushing for scaling solutions faster and really like there's the urgency of all of these disasters occurring around us. and having that new conversation of thinking about equity and inclusion as part of that because climate justice includes racial justice right mm -hmm. and um equitable solutions and aligned solutions non-zero-sum game solutions which is kind of the root of sustainability in general also i'm super i'm really appreciative of the younger generations just being more activist minded and really pushing for change. I mean, every generation has activists, but I've never really been part of those kinds of communities. And so I come from like the more entrenched uh, business world. And, but at the same time, I've always been an internal champion for change within those groups. But seeing the folks from the outside and even seeing like Climate Voices with Bill Weil, his group, being activist minded uh, for corporations, that is totally new. And I love that. I think it's like, you know, neutrality is not an option anymore. We need to actually push and be advocates, um, be activist minded, all of us. So 
you know, I'm definitely part of a movement and I think everyone should be. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit more about that activist mentality. Where, uh, where do you think we need more activist energy to be put right now? And I think I mean specifically in the professional realm. So like less of the, less of the wider climate movement stuff, but where, um, where are the areas that are sort of not progressing in, in your view, you know, in climate tech and uh, the larger realm of, you know, climate and business? Uh, yeah, I mean, frankly, I'm disappointed with how far the buildings industry has come. <laughs> um, I, I was hoping that by now, <laughs> after, mm -hmm. you know, all the pushing on, you know, existing building greening and um you know a lot of other kinds of like uh split incentive issues and all of that stuff that happens in the buildings world um that that would help start i don't know create more demand um and create more significant influential policy change um i i think there's a really exciting movement in the building electrification space but that's very mm -hmm. uh, coastal right now um, and, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, people are going to see the health benefits of that, but it's also really hard whenever, you know, people are always looking at dollars, right? And so you've got to put incentives in place, working in conjunction with, you know, education and grassroots efforts and, you know, NGO efforts. And there's just a lot of, there's a culmination of different kind of pre-competitive efforts that need to happen in order to actually gain more traction in greening kind of all of our buildings um, and also getting more uh, kind of products out there and innovation out there to really spurn a change. Um, so, I mean, that's, I think, an area that is lacking. Also, just like industry, right? Any kind of stuff that is really hard to uh, lower emissions on, uh, you know, really it's about what can we do to commercialize more solutions in those areas that, and make them bankable, right? So that's mm -hmm. to me what kind of shifts things. I think generally uh, I'm always pushing for a movement of alignment, which is more pre-competitive groups, more, uh, you know, coalitions, multi-stakeholder groups, more people to create more volume, to demand, you know, bigger change, right? So like Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance is a great example of, um, you know, a number of NGOs getting together and a number of very important corporations getting together saying, we alone cannot make a change, but we together have the buying power to push utilities in a specific direction to, you know, really increase the, the you know, uh, renewables generation and production. Um, all that kind of stuff. So there is an ability for us all to make a change, but we have to work together. And that's really challenging. And I think the buildings industry had tried that, but it really hasn't made the same amount of progress as some other industries have. Right. I'm so inspired by that kind of affiliation and pulling together to, you know, to push things harder as a group. I think that's really crucial. Um, Elaine, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about who you're most inspired by these days in terms of leaders. I mean, in really climate movement leaders, built environment leaders or others, any realm, really. Yeah, well, I, so I want to, you know, give a shout out to a number of, a couple of people. I mean, they're, it's funny because I was listening to some of your other podcasts and I'm like, yes, yes, and yes. I love all the people that everybody has already listed. Um, and there are some unsung heroes for sure. And there are people that we've certainly elevated um, when I was running Verge at GreenBiz. Um, in terms of the programming, we tried to elevate certain voices, especially people of color and women. Um, and the women that I, in particular, you know, have been influenced by, especially in light of the conditions right now with civil unrest and really you know, elevating the topic of systemic racial injustice, um, Vien Trong, who is the former CEO of DreamCorps, Van Jones's organization, um, which includes Green for All, she really opened my eyes um, in like 2013, 2014 to the interconnection of racial injustice and climate change and how systemic climate solutions had to be equitable and inclusive and how that was affecting those communities. I never really thought about 
those who are typically disenfranchised in the climate movement. I just never made the environmental justice, climate justice kind of connection for some reason. Um, but in, that was my own denseness. But I think the point is more just that she is really effective communicator to all different kinds of groups. Like she's, you know, basically she can talk really street and she can also talk to heads of state. Mm -hmm. And she, and her ability to communicate to all different kinds of ages and types of people and tell her story in a compelling way. She has a really amazing story. You should look her up, Dian Trong. Um, yep. She really uh, has inspired me and really opened my eyes to th that topic. And, and I think about it constantly. Um, Michelle Moore, who you may all know, is also a hero of mine, hero of mine. Um, she's currently the CEO of Groundswell which mm -hmm. develops community solar projects in these subscriber management programs that basically connect solar power with economic empowerment and affordability and quality of life. And it, they really do a lot of work in the American South and the U.S. South, um, and in, especially in uh, Black communities. And also, uh, you know, it's basically saying, like, you know, we need more renewable energy, uh, more affordable energy, more clean energy, for communities that generally don't have energy, uh, ha don't have access to that um, at it, in a way that will actually uplift the community and actually benefit them from even a profit and a kind of local economy standpoint, right? So basically mm -hmm. the point is that clean energy is a necessity, not a luxury. So how do, how do they, they, they basically create programs so that, you know, everybody can kind of be in this together and they just can't afford to leave their neighbors behind. Um, and, and I really love that aspect of what she's doing. She was a former USGBC executive um, mm -hmm. back in the day, you know this. And then also she was the former head of sustainability policy and programs under Obama administration. Um, so those are the two that kind of come to mind that I always kind of think about and, you know, am influenced by and also talk to. Um, also just generally, not necessarily recent, but, but constantly in, in terms of shaping my sustainability career and the way that I think about everything. Um, is Buckminster Fuller. Mm -hmm. um, you know, every time he, I think about World Game, which is, you know, making the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone, that is the goal, right? That's mm -hmm. the goal. And that's what guides me. That's my guiding North Star. That's like, how do I do that? So, you know, he talked about this a long time ago and, you know, posthumous Buckminster, Bucky Fuller is like the person that really has helped shape, you know, how I should be looking at world, the world. And then finally, um, Dana Meadows, Danello Meadows, um, <laughs> she is kind of the consummate person who I think about when I think about th systems thinking, yep. right? So, you know, leverage points, the limits to growth, thinking in systems, her books really, really opened my eyes to the application of systems thinking in everything we do. So really looking at things at a root level and understanding that, you know, we all behave and we all do things in a way that falls in certain systems traps. How do we get out of those traps? How do we get people to change behavior in a way that's going to be most effective and most mm -hmm. efficient, right? Like yeah. it's hard. And those who have the capacity to think deeply about these things should, and you've got to perpetuate that. And so we do our darndest to do it, even though it is a systems trap, which everybody always falls into all the time. You see it every day on the news. Oh, that's, you know, uh, drift to lowest, you know, like it's, it's, there's just like so many things like, you mm -hmm. know, uh, I don't know. I just feel like every single one of her points in, in terms of thinking in systems and limits to growth and all of those essays and books that she's written are mm -hmm. still resonant today and universally applicable and should be ubiquitous on bookshelves in school systems. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I'm a huge Dana Meadows fan and it's come up a few times on the podcast and I'm delighted to hear it come up again. I think it's such a, I mean, leverage points is just so powerful and it really does apply to everything. I mean, it is just incredibly illuminating. Those are terrific terrific names that you mentioned. Really good, inspiring people to think about. Um, I did also want to ask, Elaine, because I think you did such a great job of outlining your very interesting, you called it windy, but I think it was, I think it's just non-linear, um, your path. <laughs> um, but for people that, you know, some aspects of, of 
the realms that you've touched are, are of interest to them. I mean, what would you recommend to people? What do they need to be good at and interested in? And how should they, you know, think about um, what, what should they be thinking about in terms of entering, finding a path that looks like something like yours? Yeah, um, this is a really great question. And I get this question a lot from people who I mentor or people who seek my advice just in terms of career. Mm -hmm. um, and it's always about having a growth mindset in everything you do. So, you know, that growth mindset, and I have a five-year-old son and he gets <laughs> frustrated with so many things and, you know, he beats himself up and all these things. But if you cultivate, you know, taking those kinds of things where you're faced, you've got a big barrier in front of you, you're really challenged, you're really feeling angry or mad at yourself or, or just like you want to give up and you turn it around and you think, that's okay. You know, I, I should keep trying. Like, let's figure out how to do this better or do this differently. Mm -hmm. And it's an opportunity to solve a problem and that's super exciting. And so then it becomes like a growth opportunity, right? And so if you have a growth mindset in everything you do, it actually, it propels you forward really fast. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I consciously did that but I for some reason I think since I was a kid I've always had a growth mindset and so it was just kind of like I got frustrated with stuff but it was like okay that was interesting let's keep let's do something different um and and also I think another aspect of that is staying curious um and just kind of being open when you're a lot of people like so my parents used to call me lucky because they just thought I was super lucky all the time but I realized like it's not just luck like I create my own luck on some level which is that I'm open to uh, to whatever is coming my way and so I just happen to notice the opportunities that will skew me toward what would appear to be lucky right so I, by having that open mindset and sort of always seeking out things and staying curious and asking questions, it gives you new opportunities that you may not have seen if you're way too focused or you're not actually curious enough, right? Mm -hmm. Then another thing is like being good at listening and asking questions. So that's actually kind of tricky, especially for a person who talks like me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, when you, there are a lot of people who you don't even think you have anything in common with. And, and sometimes there are people who you don't think you'll even understand, but if you just listen and you ask them questions and you kind of just almost not, it's not naive, but just ask the questions. If you have a question, ask the question. There's no dumb questions, right? They can think whatever about you, but who cares? You have an opportunity to learn. And so, you know, you've got to be comfortable with being humble about that. Um, it's also easy to avoid engaging on topics that may seem too challenging. Um, but if you keep doing things that make you kind of uncomfortable, as I said before, then you grow and you learn faster. And so I know women in particular, they shy away from certain kinds of topics, it seems in my experience. And men too, actually. Um, everyone shies away from certain things that they think they won't be good at or that they think are just too hard. Mm -hmm. And that's really uh that's common and that's okay. And you, you know, sometimes feel like that, but if you do that all the time, uh, I think you shut off opportunities to grow. Um, and, and, you know, the reason why I could change so many different industries is because it was like, that sounds cool. I don't know anything about it, but let's do this. And I happen to have enough skills that, you know, could give me doors opening in those directions, even though I had no experience in certain industries. And one of those aspects of um, kind of being willing to do something different is that sometimes you have to take a step down mm -hmm. because you don't have a background in that. Like, you know, I had been doing stuff at a fairly like mid-manager level in my early 20s. And then I took a step down and I took another step down. And then I was an entry-level engineer. And then, I, you know, and that was okay. But it's all built me up to be able to do a lot more. I'm a stronger person. I've never been a like a career ladder striver kind of person, but I am a hard worker and I want to learn a lot. And that just propelled me um, to where I am right now. And, you know, if it's, I don't know, you just have to be humble in terms of the trajectory of where you're going to go. It's not always going to be up. That's okay. It's going to be better. That's what, that's the point. Right. And right. then as you start to understand the world, 
<clears throat> because you're taking on new challenges, because you're curious, because you have a growth mindset, you'll start to understand all of its interconnections in a deeper way. <clears throat> the more you get exposed to different things, you start creating more neural connections. And those, that connectivity starts to get, help you see how everything relates to each other, right? <clears throat> That's sustainability, right? That helps you solve problems more systemically, and then you inevitably become a catalyst for positive change. That is so interesting. And I know that I'm, you know, we're having this conversation at a certain point in time, but it's so much of that relates like growth mindset, curiosity, openness, and listening. All of that relates to this issue that people in our industry are thinking about right now, which is that racial justice is part of sustainable communities and what we're trying, what we're all working for and how that's so integrated. And I just find it so interesting that there's such parallels to what you were talking about to that right now sorry to make it i'm just have to, it's just the moment we're in i realize but no it really is exactly great. that is it's all relevant i mean that's the point is that when you start to see the world in a way like like what are the things that you value what are the things that we need to do what are the solutions how can we take action it all kind of boils back down to listen educate yourself mm -hmm. and then you know start to you know get into a mindset where you have empathy and you have, you know, the ability to kind of communicate in a way that is receiving rather than taking, right? Whenever you get into that mindset, you start to see that everybody needs that. That's how we solve problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it be the systemic, uh, you know, racial upheaval that is happening right now or, you know, COVID or unemployment or, you know, there's just so much going on in every government right now and the wealth disparity. And the, there's, I mean, it's not just about climate change, but climate change is this overlying thing that once you start understanding the problems of climate, you start understanding the problems of everything. Absolutely. That that's how you solve for it too. Yeah, it's so true. So much of this is really just about the openness to understanding a system and, mm -hmm. um, and taking that seriously. Um, well, th thank you, Elaine. This is so much good stuff. Um, I, I, I feel like we could talk for a couple of more hours about everything, but we will, uh, we'll leave that for, you know, hanging out sometime and having a glass of wine and, you know, uh, not being on a, on a recording in the same structured way. Uh, but yeah, thank you for being with us. This has been really awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, and thanks to everyone for listening this week. That's it for us on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. So thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.